Well, I get to talk about hope this morning, which is a lot more fun than talking about sin and judgment and hell and damnation, so I'm thrilled. This has been a lot of fun studying this passage this week and studying other passages related to the hope of God. That is our theme this morning. And the nice thing about hope, it's a very popular thing, right? You don't see a lot of people marching against hope. Everyone seems to like it on one level or another. The Bible has a lot to say about hope. One of the passages I remember well, Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Some of us have used that in prayers to the Lord saying, well, give me what I want because I'm beginning to feel sick, Lord. Uh, I think it also explains why around Christmas time, some children that I know pretty well do everything within their little power to find out what Christmas gifts they have before Christmas morning. They'll search high and low all over the house. They'll open packages. They'll look at the Amazon uh, list. Something comes in the mail, they weigh it. They try to evaluate exactly what might be in there. Later on, they confess these things and I'm aware of it. My suspicion is they probably will even try to use Hebrews 13, 12 before the Lord and say, well, Lord, I, I didn't want to be sick because I might have missed church. So I'm not going to throw anybody on the bus. I won't tell you what children I'm talking about, but just look around on Judgment Day. I think it'll all become very clear. <laughs> Hope is one of the things that is so important in a world that is filled with the tragic consequences of sin, isn't it? We all need hope. Sometimes the only thing someone needs to keep them fighting, to keep them going in the midst of their challenges, is a word of hope, a sense that their pain, their suffering will come to an end, that better days are ahead. I mean, think about what your life would be like without hope. You would be hopeless, right? That doesn't sound good. Because our lives are not problem-free, I think it really is hard to overestimate or overstate the importance of hope. We're always hoping for something. I mean, not a day goes by when we are not hoping for something. Sometimes it's, it's obvious, sometimes it's more subtle. But to lose all hope is to fall into depression, which as some of you know is a very scary and dark place to be. There are things that we hope for that I would call like big H or capital H hopes. And then there are other hopes that are small H, they're little H hopes. And I believe as Christians, that's a very important distinction for us to make. We'll return to that later, but one thing that I hope is very clear from this message this morning is that our hope, the hope that you and I have that drives us through life, that hope is completely tied to the revelation of God's glory in Jesus. Our hope is completely tied to the revelation of God's glory in Jesus. And hope is an obvious theme during the Advent season because Jesus provides us with that hope. Imagine that Jesus didn't come to earth. Imagine that there was no sacrifice for our sin. Then everything important, everything of internal significance that you and I hope for would be gone. There would be no forgiveness of sins. There would be no heaven. There would be no intimacy with God. All of those things would be gone. I mean, imagine that world for a moment. It's a very, very scary thing. So this morning, I'd like us to look at the theme of hope from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5, but also from other passages in God's Word. And my prayer is that you, if you were a follower of Jesus this morning, that your hope in Him and in the big H, the capital H, 
hopes that God gives us in his word, they, those will be renewed in your heart and they'll be evident to everyone around you. But if you're far from the Lord this morning, if you don't know God through his son, Jesus Christ, my hope is that you will, through God's word this morning, come to understand the hope that is only available to you through Jesus Christ. Our primary passage, Isaiah 41 through 5, it's in your bulletin insert on the bottom beneath the outline, but you can also find it on page 599 of the blue Bibles in the seat back in front of you. And as always, we encourage you to, uh, to follow along. This is what it says, Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. Do you hear the heart of God in the first two verses? The love of God for his people is so evident in these first two verses. He begins by saying, comfort, comfort. He has seen their suffering. Even though it's deserved because of their sin, he has seen it. And he seeks to relieve it. And then he says, my people, says your God. In spite of their rebellion, he will not abandon them. It's a promise that's true for God's people today. In spite of our sin, God will not abandon us. Then he goes on to say, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tenderly is such a great word, isn't it? I mean, tenderly communicates the love and the affection, the gentleness, the care. Cry to her that her warfare is ended. God is proclaiming your troubles are over. Your warfare has ended. Better times are ahead. And then finally, that her iniquity is pardoned, her sin is forgiven, her debt is paid, and she is free. And what makes this so remarkable is the depth of the rebellion of God's people when this was spoken. In fact, the exile hadn't even happened yet. God was, was commanding that they speak to a future generation. They were still yet to be punished, and yet God looked ahead with grace and forgiveness. You see Israel's disobedience and rejection of God throughout their history. It's tragic as you read the Old Testament. Just reading through the book of Isaiah reminds you of that. Let me give you sort of an example of that. When God first called Isaiah to his prophetic ministry, he told him how difficult it was going to be. It says in chapter 6, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And then I said, you can imagine why Isaiah would say this, for how long? How long do I have to preach? 
And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the field ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. That is remarkable, isn't it? Their ongoing rebellion. They were so hard-hearted that in the end, it didn't matter who God sent. It didn't matter what they said. It didn't matter what was threatened. They continued to rebel. The preaching of God's word, the warnings and the blessings only made their hearts more callous towards God. And eventually, the exile that God warned them about became their reality. And yet, even after that, God showed them mercy and grace. So from this passage and others, I want to explain three themes about God's glory that I believe will help us to understand the hope that God graciously offers to all of us. Because as I said, our hope is completely tied to the revelation of God's glory in Jesus. No glory, no hope. It is that simple. So first, some of you may be asking, well, what is the glory of God? It's actually not as easily defined. I want to give you a, a, just a brief definition that I've stolen from a number of different people. It's simply this. The glory of God can be briefly defined as the beauty and greatness of God's character. The beauty and the greatness of God's character. And in verse 5 it says that the glory of the Lord will be revealed. So the implication is that in some way now it's hidden or concealed. Even though the Bible declares that at creation and through creation, the glory of God can still be seen. So from the bulletin insert, you can see our three points are this. The glory of the Lord displayed, and then you can write after that, in creation. The glory of the Lord displayed in creation. Number two, the glory of the Lord concealed, then put in by sin. And then finally, the glory of the Lord revealed in Jesus. The first is this, the glory of the Lord displayed in creation. In Genesis 1.31, after God had created everything, it says this, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, the way we use the term very good, I think it's safe to say that was a, a gross understatement, right? I mean, we wouldn't have looked and said, creation of the entire universe out of nothing, very good. Very good. That's a gold star. No, it was far greater than very good in the way we use the, the, the term, right? It was perfect. It was complete. It was everything that it should be. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. They're shouting the glory of God all the time. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Later on in Isaiah 40, verse 26, lift up your eyes to the heavens, which we should do more often than, than we may. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each forth by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. When I think of God's glory and creation, the stars are one of the things I think about. I am amazed at the stars. And I'm reminded of a time when I was driving back to Chicago from California uh, at the end of a, a school year. And I was in the middle of the desert somewhere, and it was, it was at night, completely dark, no, no other cars on the highway, no lights. And I decided that I was going to pull off to the side of the road. I turned off all the lights in my car. All I could see were the stars. 
and I was amazed. I had never seen that many stars. It was incredible. And I have to admit that I went from amazement to sheer terror in a matter of seconds, and I got back in my car because I thought some animal was going to come off the road and eat me. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was scary. But you know what's amazing, though? Is that God is, is about much more than making stuff. I mean, even really cool stuff like stars. God is into making relationships. That's what he wants. So I'd like to look at these three themes of God's glory from the perspective of three relationships. Don't worry, we're going to move through them kind of quickly. But our relationship to creation, our relationship to one another, and then ultimately our relationship to God. So how was the glory of God displayed in creation through our relationship with creation itself? Well, I think in the peace and in the harmony that Adam and Eve experienced within the Garden of Eden. God made Adam and Eve, and he made the garden, and he made them perfectly suited for one another. There's a lot of ways that we see this. One is the climate, which is appropriate to bring up in December in Chicago. No Ugg boots, no sweaters, no gloves. I mean, they were naked, right? And they didn't need any clothes. The weather, the climate was absolutely perfect. They would have walked around and said, this is amazing. I love summer in Chicago. I love summer anywhere. And I walk out and even feel that hot sun against me. I'm like, oh, it just feels so nice. God created it perfectly. Every time they walked around and experienced the weather, it declared the glory of God. There was peace in the Garden of Eden. Nobody was killing and eating each other, which is good. God said, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth. Every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. It was also safe. There was no danger in the Garden of Eden. You know, God didn't say to them, you should steer clear of the west side of the garden. There's some sinkholes we're working on. Don't go near there. Follow the signs. If you do, you'll be fine. There was no threat. There was no danger. God tasked Adam with working and keeping the garden and the earth would respond with favorable harvests. In other words, our relationship with creation showed us God's glory. It showed us his creativity. It showed us his power. It showed us his beauty. Everywhere they looked, Adam and Eve could see the work of God, and they would marvel at every turn. God's glory was also revealed to Adam and Eve in their relationship with one another before sin entered the world. The key verse here, I think, is Genesis 2.25, where it says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, I don't want you to imagine what they looked like. I want you to imagine what their relationship was like. And contrast that with our own relationships. Shame is inescapable in this life. You and I live in a world that is full of shame. In fact, our culture is rebelling against any kind of shame. You will be criticized severely if you shame anyone, no matter what they do. We want to live in a shame-free culture. We want to kill our conscience, in effect. So we live in a shame-filled world, but they were not unashamed while naked because they were in such great shape, right? It wasn't that we're always ashamed just because, well, we, we could probably get back to the gym a little bit more often. They were unashamed because there was no sin between them. Absolutely nothing to avert their eyes from one another. No unkind words had been spoken. No acts of selfishness. No failure to love perfectly. They lived in perfect harmony. 
They were always serving, always loving, caring, always gracious, always putting on for one another the glorious character of God. And so their interaction with each other revealed the glory of God and the character of God perfectly. No human relationship now is even close to that. Even our best friends, our, our family members, they will hurt us and disappoint us time and time again in big ways and small ways. But God's glory, the greatness, and the beauty of his character was seen all the time and how Adam and Eve interacted with each other before sin entered the world. And then most importantly, the glory of God was seen in creation in their relationship with God. It was unhindered closeness and fellowship. Complete access to God. Complete trust. There was love and joy and delight. They could see God and know him personally. They spoke with him as we speak with one another. I mean, imagine what it would have been like to be in the Garden of Eden. God not feeling distant, never wondering if God loved you, never questioning the wisdom of, of God's plan. Can you picture a creation like that and understand how it reveals the glory of God? We see God's beauty in his holy character, not only in what he has made, but in his design that all of the interactions of creation reveal who he is. It constantly puts his glory on display. We would have seen it with delight in everything that we saw, in everything that we tasted, in everything that we heard, we would have heard the glory of God, and in everything that we touched, we would have touched and experienced evidence of the glory of God. But unfortunately, sin entered into the world through Adam and Eve's disobedience, which means that the glory of the Lord is concealed. It's concealed by our sin. Now in mercy, in God's mercy, sin doesn't completely conceal God's glory. He wouldn't allow that. But we would have to admit, doesn't it, that, wouldn't we, that, that it makes it more difficult for us to see God's glory. With respect to our relationship with creation, Romans 8.22, which was read earlier, says that all creation groans because of sin, and we do as well. We now have thorns and weeds and storms, mosquitoes, poison ivy, skunks, and carnivores. I mean, sometimes it, it, it seems as if all of nature is arrayed to kill us. Just stay in your house and you'll be safe. And in fact, unfortunately and tragically, nature does kill. The peace and the harmony that originally existed between humanity and nature has now been spoiled by sin. And so God's glory is concealed in all those things. We see it in glimpses here and there. But at times it seems that there's far more to be afraid of than to appreciate and what about a relationship with others? It's actually worse now, I think, than our relationship with creation, now that sin is in the world. Instead of praising God for someone's beauty, we lust and we envy. Instead of rejoicing in another's success, we may find ourselves jealous of it. Instead of sacrificially meeting the needs of others around us, we learn to ignore them. Instead of looking for ways to encourage and bless, we tease, we criticize, and we judge. How do I know this? Apart from walking through life with my eyes open, because God repeatedly tells us to knock it off, right? That's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, 
faithfulness, self-control. I could add scripture memory to that too. That's what God commands of us. He has to command it of us because otherwise we won't do it. Not only that, he has to empower us to do it because sin drives us in the other direction. And the sad truth is, if we're honest with ourselves, is that we have become so accustomed to life in this world. We have become so accustomed to sin that we, we are not as sensitive to it as we should be. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us. It's like someone who works at Starbucks and they don't realize that they stink of coffee, but when they go home, their roommate says, you stink of coffee. So when I go out and run and I come back, there's a, one of my children who's eager to tell me, Dad, you stink. I think I smell like a bed of roses. I don't smell the stink at all. She apparently does. But that's what sin does in our relationships. Sometimes we don't see it. We don't smell the stink of sin. And it conceals the glory of God. Next, sin conceals the glory of God in our relationship with him. How does sin distort people's view of God and hide his glory? Well, we see it all around us, right? They reject God. They mock God. They either say out loud or they say with their lives that you are not worthy of the effort to pursue you. And they blame God for the results of their sin and the sin of others. Tell a non-Christian that God is glorious, it's not likely they're going to believe you. They don't see it. Even Christians who are not walking with the Lord struggle because of our sin. We don't see the glory of God. It's tragic. But here's the good news. Here is where our hope comes from. The glory of God revealed in Jesus. In his first coming, fully revealed when he returns again. Let's look again at Isaiah verse, uh, chapter 40, specifically verses 3 through 5. It says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh, all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Some of you recognize verse 3 and you're thinking to yourself, wasn't that passage said about John the Baptist in 1 John 1.22? No, it was actually 1 John 1.23. You were close. The religious leaders of John the Baptist day, they came to him and they wanted to know who he was. And he denied being the prophet. He denied that he was Elijah. So they said, well, what do you say about yourself? Who are you? And John quoted this verse. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Isn't that awesome? That means that this passage, it's a messianic prophecy. It's a prophecy about the coming Messiah. It was ultimately pointing to John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus, the Messiah and the Son of God. And that, that is where our hope, our big H hope comes from. That's the hope. Jesus' is coming revealed the glory of God in salvation. When he came to give his life for all those who place their faith in him, Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is, it is his glory to overlook an offense. 
and that is the glory of God. It is a reflection in us when we overlook an offense. It's a reflection of God's glory to forgive our sin. Countless sins throughout our lifetime. It glorifies God to redeem lost men and women, rebellious men and women, and adopt them into his family. God is glorified because he is shown to be great and loving and merciful and holy by saving sinners. So how does that give us hope? One, Jesus restores our relationship with creation by making all things new. Do you know what a teardown is? A teardown is the house that's for sale, but the people that want to buy it want to tear it down. Right? They don't want the house, they want the property. So it's foolish if you live in a teardown to spend a lot of money renovating your house because they're just going to tear it down. This earth is a teardown. God is going to tear this thing down. It's gone. And he is going to replace it with a new heavens and a new earth. One that we don't have to fear. One that will be more glorious, more incredible, more reflective of God's glory than we can even imagine. Is that not something worth hoping for? Everywhere we look, we will see the glory of God. I mean, the Bible talks about heaven as streets paved with, with gold. Well, that's a great start. I think we're going to be exploring God's creation, the universe, for all of eternity. And all of it re will reveal the glory of God. Number two, our relationship with God, with others, will once again be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit perfectly. Because the Bible says that, beloved, we are God's children. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And when you and I, as followers of the Lord Jesus, are like him, then every interaction that you and I have will reveal the glory of God to one another. Really, that's what marriage is supposed to do. It does it imperfectly. Good, all good relationships can do that. That how I treat you, how I speak to you, how I care about you, how I serve you, how I love you, shows you how your heavenly Father views you. And it reflects his glory. And then thirdly, our relationship with God will be everything that God designed it to be. One of my favorite verses is Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I mean, right now, it's wonderful to be in church. But we wouldn't say that we experience the fullness of God's joy right now. We wouldn't say that there's nothing but pleasure. When you're home reading your Bible and you're praying, by God's grace, it, you get a taste of this. But there's distractions, right? There's noises. In God's presence for all eternity, will be fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Talk about hope. Talk about capital H, big hope. That's it. That's it for all of us. It's the only hope we need and the hope that we desperately want. Small H hopes, those are good. Those are appropriate in most cases. Some of us hope to get married, to have children, to get a good job, to have a nice life. And in difficult times, we hope we can get the money to pay rent. We hope our marriage can be saved. 
We hope the treatment will make us healthy again. But compared to eternity, those are small H hopes. They are small H hopes. I don't want to live in a world where cancer can be cured. I want to live in a world where there's no cancer. I don't want to live in a world where marriages are at friction and, and, and can be restored. I want there to be perfect harmony. I want to live in a world where there is nothing but love. There is nothing but compassion. There is nothing but grace and caring. I don't want to live in a world where people confess their sins and forgiven. I want to live in a world that has no sin. That is our hope. We are going there. That is the hope of everyone who trusts in Jesus because that is our future. These little hopes may or may not come true. This big H hope and all the ones like it will come true because the word of the Lord has spoken. So please hear me again. These small H hopes are good and appropriate for the most part. But you know what we need to do? We need to see them as breadcrumbs that are leading the path home to our Heavenly Father. They are not the marriage supper of the Lamb that is promised to God's people. They're breadcrumbs. Breadcrumbs are good. I like breadcrumbs. But they're leading us to our Heavenly Father. They're not even to be eaten if they're on the path. They're leading us to the great hope. And we must not confuse the two. So finally, how do we apply this kind of hope? What do we do with this? Really two simple ways. Number one, we live in this hope. We live in it. What you and I hope for is evident by what we say and how we live. Our ultimate hope is in the revelation of God's glory in his son, Jesus Christ. Live to show that you truly believe this. Show that God is glorious. Live as if God is glorious. As one pastor put it, make much of him like he's the most valuable, glorious thing in the universe because he is. Because he is. Amen. You know, I have seen many people in our church come to the elders to pray for them, even over the past week. And they have glorified God because what they consistently say is may God's will be done in healing or if he's calling me home. Carrie Mason, wife of Pastor Steve, I've mentioned this before, but I think the way she put it is a way that will stick with me for the rest of my life. When facing cancer treatment and asking for prayer, she just said, there's no bad ending for me. There's no bad ending. I will be cured and be with my family for a longer period of time or God is calling me home. I mean, how great is the glory of God when his people submit to him that way? I mean, how, how clear is our understanding of how great God is when we submit to him that way? There, that's one powerful way for us to live in that hope. There are many more. Ask God. Ask God what your way is today. And then secondly, share this hope. We have to live in this hope and then we have to share this hope. I mean, how can we possibly keep it to ourselves, right? We can't. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. 
Jesus came to bring us hope. And now we know that the Lord charges us with sharing that hope with everyone the Holy Spirit leads us to. And that's why we are encouraging you to invite people to the Christmas concert, to invite people to church, to give them an opportunity to hear about the hope that we have in Jesus. And you've already heard us talk about this Explore God series that's coming up in January, where through the sermons we're going to answer the top seven questions that non-Christians have about Christianity. And we're, we're encouraging you to invite people you know to have conversations about God so they might experience this hope. It's not theoretical, it's real. People are hopeless apart from Christ. They need to hear this hope in Jesus. And so just before we end, I want to show you a brief video about this Explore God series. It's not a commercial. Everything is free. But I think it's an excellent God-given opportunity for all of us to share the hope that we have in Jesus. I've seen over the years thousands of people who may seem far from God, but when you give them the opportunity, it's amazing how many people actually want to explore God. I don't think that humans have the ability to know. For me, I have to see it to believe it. I'm not saying that I'm unconvincible. I'm certainly open to whatever someone might show me, but uh, I can't think of anything that would convince me right now. I hope there's, there's something else out there. It'd be, it'd be fun to experience uh, whatever God has in store next. Simply why. I mean, why we're here, what's the point? What is it that he has planned that makes it all worth it? It's an opportunity to bring people together to start talking about this God that loves them, maybe for the first time, but not the last. As followers of Jesus, our hope is completely tied to the revelation of God's glory in His Son, Jesus. With God's help, let's live in it and let's share it. Let's pray. Our Father, You have given us the only hope that we need. The great hope that all of our small hopes point to. And I pray this morning that we would embrace that 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 hope would be renewed in us as your people and new in those who don't know you this morning. May we live in it. May we share it. In Jesus' name, amen.